We turn in the word of God to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11. Can I just briefly say that I am uh, very glad to be among you again and to have the opportunity of fellowship in the gospel and to worship the Lord with you. And so we turn in the Word of God to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And it's particularly those words, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. So our theme then is the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now the setting of these words, of this verse, is that the apostle is dealing with the right use of the law of God. The false teachers whom he was opposing were teaching that the law, the commands of God, were to be kept as a means of self-salvation. That same falsehood that the Apostle Paul had engaged in and attempted before he was called by the grace of God. And uh, so they were teaching that it is by our own endeavours to keep the commands of God that we can attain to righteousness in the sight of God. No doubt there were other aspects to their doctrine, but at the heart of it, the false teachers were teaching a self-salvation, a salvation by self-righteousness, if not in whole, at least in part, and as if some kind of self-righteousness was necessary in order to, as it were, supplement the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by contrast, the apostle shows that the first right use of the law is to show us that we are sinners and in need of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse 8, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane. And he then goes on to list some uh, grievous transgressions of the law of God. And so the apostle is saying that the first right use of the law of God is to show us as in a mirror our filthiness as transgressors of that law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The apostle in Romans 7 uh, said he had not known sin 
but by the law that uh, the law awakened in him a sense of his guilt before God. So he says then in Romans chapter 7, what shall we say then? Verse 7, is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead, uh, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. So he's saying that the law of God showed him he was a sinner. In fact, the more he realized what God required in his law, the more he wanted, because of his sinful nature, the very thing that the law of God uh, commanded him not to do. You see, not only are we sinners, but we have such corrupt natures in rebellion against God that the effect of knowing God's commands, the more clearly we understand the commandments of God, such is our depravity by nature that it has the effect of making us want the very thing forbidden. And uh, so the law shows us that we are sinners. So the law is wrongly used if we try to use it as a means of saying that we don't need Jesus Christ and that we can earn our own way into acceptance with God. But when it teaches us that we are lawbreakers, and that we desperately do need forgiveness and acceptance with God through Jesus Christ, that we deserve to be damned forever for our sins, and that forgiveness can only be had in the Saviour, Jesus Christ, then that is a right use of the law of God. <coughs> and that's why our text says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. According to this use of the law is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. It is in harmony with the glorious gospel. It is in line with, it is at one with, it is consistent with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And uh, if we could save ourselves by our own efforts at keeping the law of God, there would be no need of a gospel of grace through Christ Jesus. As the Apostle says in Galatians 2, 21, For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. There would be no need of a saviour if righteousness could be wrought out before God by our own efforts. But when the law is used to expose sin and need of the Saviour, then this is according to the gospel, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. 
But the apostle, in referring to the gospel at this point, does not simply say the gospel. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. Now this is not just empty, flowery uh, rhetoric of some kind. It has meaning, of course it does. The apostle wrote under the uh, infallible inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore there is meaning to each of these words. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. Let us learn firstly, the gospel comes from God. The gospel comes from God. Very basic, but very necessary that it should be said. It is the gospel of God. Now, it comes from God in every respect. The historical facts of the gospel are God-ordained facts. The birth, life, death, resurrection and exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of these historical facts, and they are historical facts, they're not just symbolic ideas as the liberals maintain. All of these historic facts came about according to the plan of God. They were revealed by God in the Old Testament long before they took place. They were from all eternity in the mind and purpose of the ever-living God and they were revealed in advance in the Old Testament and came to pass at the appointed time in history. And uh, God had revealed in the Old Testament the promises concerning the Saviour Back in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman uh, would crush the head of the serpent. That was a, a, the initial promise of the coming of the Saviour as the Redeemer of sinners. And then uh, the promise was narrowed down that he would come of the tents of Shem. That he would come of the seed of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob of the tribe of Judah, that he would be the root out of Jesse, that he would be the son of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, and all was fulfilled according to the word of the Lord. Uh, Isaiah's prophecy, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. These things were fulfilled in due time. <coughs> and the life and death of the Lord Jesus, God revealed something concerning them in advance of the event. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, setting forth the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were fulfilled in due time. And his resurrection, uh, fulfilling Psalm 16, thou shalt not Leave my soul in hell, neither suffer thine holy one to see corruption. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand 
our pleasures forevermore. And uh, that psalm is quoted in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 36 that the Lord Jesus was fulfilling all that was prophesied of him. And so the Apostle Peter again on the day of Pentecost says of our Lord Jesus him him, uh, he was delivered according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God and ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain him. So these facts of redemption were ordained of God and were brought about in the plan and providence of God. But then the message concerning these facts comes from God. The message concerning these facts comes from God in Acts chapter 3 and verse 18. We read, But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which shall not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the the people. And so on. There the message based upon the facts of redemption accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ. That message is from God. God ordained from eternity the Redeemer's coming and his fulfilling all righteousness, his bearing the guilt of sin uh, on the cross and his rising from the dead and his exaltation to the Father's right hand And God has appointed the message to be declared to men on the basis of those facts. And so in Acts 17 verse 30, God now commanded all men everywhere to repent. For he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he had given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. So the facts of the gospel are ordained of God, and the message that rests upon those facts is sent by God. And this message is one that God tells sinners that they must heed, and it is given, as the apostle says, Romans 1, 5, for the obedience of faith among the nations. And this is the only gospel of God. And it's the only 
true gospel because the only true gospel is that which comes from God. There is no other gospel, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given under heaven amongst men whereby we must be saved. And the apostle denounces all other gospels, but this gospel in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ <coughs> unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. So the apostle pronounces the curse of God upon all who preach any other gospel than that gospel which comes from God. But you say, perhaps, if, there are, if there's only one true gospel, why are there so many religions? And the answer is that in the end, there are only two religions, the true and the false, that which comes from God and that which does not come from God. The false religions, whether pseudo-Christian or openly pagan, they all come down to the fact that they do not say what God says. They do not say what God says about man's guilt, about God in his holiness and glory and majesty and his justice. And all false religion teaches either that salvation is not needed or that salvation in whole or in part is in man's power. Whereas the true religion, biblical Christianity, declares to men that God is holy, just, sovereign, that he will by no means clear the guilty, that man is sinful, that he is depraved, that he is helpless and without strength, and that salvation is of God in its entirety through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you might say, where then does false religion come from? False religion does not come from men seeking after God, but from men seeking to avoid God. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, when he views the pagan world, he does not say, here are people who, yes, they, they worship wrong ideas of God, they make idols of their own invention, but they're really seeking after God. He says, no, it's because they do not want to retain God in their knowledge that they make God in their imagination, to be something other than he is. Wrong ideas of God 
proceed from the wishful thinking of the heart of man. And that's why people worship idols, whether they make physical idols or whether they, uh, in their minds, form an idea of God that is contrary to truth. False religion has its origin in the sinfulness of man, not in his desire after the living and true God as he really is. It is the desire to hold the truth in unrighteousness, to hold down the truth, to get rid of the truth that accounts for false religion in all its forms. And atheism is simply false religion in its starkest colors, in that instead of uh, inventing a wrong idea of God, the atheist simply says there is no God. Whereas the gospel of God says not only is there a God, but this is what he is like. He is holy, he is just, he is righteous, he is gracious. And this God holds men accountable for their sins. This God punishes sin forever in hell. This God has sent his Son to bear the guilt of sin in the place of an elect people. Sinners must depend utterly upon this Savior to be accepted in the sight of God. And so great is man's dependence on God that he is even dependent upon God's grace to make him willing to depend upon Jesus Christ to be accepted in the sight of God. So this gospel comes from God. It's called the gospel of God. But then, secondly, the gospel comes from the blessed God. The gospel comes from the blessed God. The text says, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. God is blessed. We do not sufficiently contemplate that, that God is blessed. The term blessed is frequently applied to God. He is the blessed and only potentate in chapter 6, verse 15 of this first Timothy. And uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is described as overall God, blessed forever. Romans chapter 9 and verse 5. God is blessed. To be blessed is to be truly happy, content. And God is blessed in himself. It is not a derived blessedness. God is supremely independent and blessed. In need of nothing. <clears throat> content in himself. As the sum of all his perfections. Tranquil, serene, peaceful. God is not worried or agitated in any way. He knows the end from the beginning. He has ordained all things and the means to every end. He is never surprised or alarmed or caught out in any way. God is blessed and blessed forever. The Lord Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh. And as I think we were seeing last time I was with you, 
The Lord Jesus Christ suffered in his human nature. The Lord Jesus Christ became a man without ceasing to be God. And God is a spirit and God is blessed forever. But the Lord Jesus, without ceasing to be God, became a man. And he suffered in his human nature. And yet, because he is uh, two distinct natures in one person forever, then although God did not suffer, a divine person suffered in his human nature. So his sufferings are of infinite value and can take away the infinite guilt of finite men. We don't understand that. Of course we don't. But it is so. But the triune God is blessed forever. And all blessedness comes from God. If God is blessed forever, in himself, independently, then men as dependent creatures can only have blessedness in God. And to this the scriptures bear consistent testimony. Blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. Blessed are the undefiled in the way. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not sin, imputeth not sin. Blessed is the man who hath the God of Jacob for his help. Blessedness is in God and only God. And every time we sin, we contradict this. That's true for Christians. Every time we sin, we're saying that blessedness is not in God. That's why every sin involves unbelief. Every sin. Every time we sin, we contradict this truth that God is blessed and that blessedness for men and women is in God. Every time we sin, we're following the lie that the serpent brought in in the Garden of Eden. Ye shall be as gods. You don't need God. Blessedness is in seeking independence of God. And every time we sin, we're saying that Psalm 1 isn't true. That blessedness is not altogether in the Lord. And that's why every sin, every sin, entails the sin of unbelief. Because if we believed that blessedness is in the Lord, then we would not seek happiness in sin. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, 
nor forsake thee. There the apostle is saying that if we, if we truly understand and know the reality of this promise, we will not be covetous. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If we understand the riches of that promise, then we will not be covetous. We will be content with such things as we have because we know that our blessedness is in the Lord and in him alone and that his blessing is all sufficient to give us contentment whatever circumstances we are in. And so every sin involves disbelief that blessedness is in God. Doesn't that make our sins, doesn't it show them up for what they really are? And look at the madness of thinking that we can be truly blessed apart from God. If God is blessed and God alone is blessed in himself and independently, and if God alone can make men and women blessed, truly happy and content in him, can you, a mere man or a mere woman or a mere child, make yourself blessed without him making you so? Do you see the madness of fallen men and women seeking blessedness in sin? Blessedness in the contradiction of the ever-blessed God? Blessedness in ignoring the source of all blessedness, that which is God himself? And can you, a sinner, at odds with your maker, can you make yourself blessed and not only blessed but eternally blessed without this message of the glorious gospel of the blessed God? Do you imagine that you can so bless yourself that you can make yourself blessed forever without this God and without peace with him and without embracing the truth that he makes known? Do you imagine that you're so clever in your unbelief that whilst estranged from the ever-blessed God, you can still be blessed? Whilst at odds with the fountain of all good, that you can manage anyway. You think perhaps that your unbelief is a clever thing. Sinners flatter themselves that they, they've got beyond this religion, this Bible religion, that they are too advanced. The, the gospel of Christ is to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. The Jews thought they were too good to need it. The Greeks thought they were too clever to bother with it. Perhaps that's true of you. That you think, what do I need? 
this gospel for. I can go my own way. The Bible calls you a fool, and so you are. However wise in your own eyes, whatever intellectual abilities God has given you, in despising the message that comes from God, you are a fool. The atheist, according to the Bible, is not a clever, objective, scientific man or woman. He's a fool. The man who lives for possessions and is not rich toward God is a fool. And if you're living for your possessions, for your farm, for your business, for your career, you're a fool. Because these things will not last. You'll have to give them all up. When death comes, if not before, all will slip through your hands. You're a fool. So in Psalm 52, verse 6 and 7, the righteous shall see it and laugh at him and say, Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but strengthened himself in wickedness. The idea is not of callousness there. It's a laugh of astonishment. Here's a man who thought he could be blessed without God. Without peace with God. Is that the wickedness that is in your heart? That you think you can be blessed in this world and perhaps in the next? Without this gospel that comes from the blessed God? What madness! And the idea there in Psalm 52 is of the righteous, the believers, and they're astonished. At the sheer, in the sheer madness, he is a man who actually thought by strengthening himself in wickedness, by, as it were, summoning natural courage in the ways of ungodliness, he could grit his teeth and get through and take what comes and look at him. Your unbelief is an absurdity. You know that death will come. But you say, oh, I'm a practical man. I, I haven't got time for this, this religious stuff. I deal in the real world. Well, death is the real world. In other things, don't you regard preparation as wisdom? And yet nothing is so certain as death. And yet you don't prepare. That's not wisdom. It's folly. And without the belief of this gospel, you will forever be cut off under God's curse and away from the favourable presence of the ever-blessed God. And all that you loved will have gone. 
in Psalm 112. Psalm 112 and verse 10. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. The desire of the wicked shall perish. If you die in your sins, all that you've desired, craved, loved, it's all gone. All that you wanted, you will never have. And you will have that which you never wanted, the wrath of God to all eternity. Blessedness is in God. And blessedness for men and women is being reconciled and at peace with his God, with forgiveness of sins and fellowship with him, which begins in this world and is perfected forever in the world to come. And thirdly, the gospel displays the glory of the blessed God. The gospel displays the glory of the blessed God. It is called here the gospel, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The meaning is that it is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That's the sense of it. That is, that the glory of God is displayed in this gospel. Now God is glorious. Glorious in himself. And we cannot in any way add to that glory, nor take from it. He is glorious. He is a spirit, infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. But God displays his glory in his works, the work of creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Psalm 8 tells us about the sun and the moon, the work of his hands, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. But God displays his glory supremely in the way that he saves sinners. God displays his glory supremely in the way that he saves sinners. The way God saves sinners and the preaching of that way that he saves sinners tells us how glorious God really is. One of the greatest needs of this day and generation is that men and women should be told what God is really like. We live in a generation that is so wise in its own eyes that it is unquestioned that men and women have the right 
to decide for themselves what kind of God they will believe in. And how the true church of Christ should be declaring what God is really like in contradiction of all the nonsense that is that is flowing about and filling the nation. And the gospel shows what God is really like. The true gospel displays the glory of the true God. That's why men and women believing a false gospel believe in a false God. People say we all worship the same God. We do not. Those who believe the biblical gospel worship the biblical, the God who is made known in the Bible. Our God is not the same as the God of Romanism or liberalism or Islam or any, anything else. And in the gospel, this glorious God shows his glory in the fullness of all his attributes. By attributes we mean those characteristics of a person. And the characteristics of God are displayed in the gospel. Characteristics of a man, we can describe their physical characteristics. They're tall, short, whatever, dark, fair. We can describe their temperamental characteristics. They're extroverts or they're shy or whatever. They're the aspects that make up what they are. But God's attributes, those characteristics that belong to him, they constitute his glory, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his truth, his grace, his mercy, his loving kindness. All these are displayed supremely in the gospel they all harmonize wonderfully because God saves sinners in a manner that is consistent with and displays all these attributes he doesn't become unjust to save sinners he doesn't become unholy to save sinners. He doesn't become untruthful to save sinners. He displays these attributes. And he displays his mercy and his love and his grace in the way that he saves sinners. How is this? The Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. By accomplishing redemption. What do we mean by that? We mean that on behalf of sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ. Fulfilled. The demands of God's holy law. Which they had broken. And on behalf of sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ. Bore the righteous judgment of God. The holy indignation and just punishment of God 
against sin in the place of sinners. And God's attributes are displayed in this. That in the way that God saves, God shows himself to be a just God and a saviour. To be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. What does that mean, the justifier? Well, justification is the opposite of condemnation. And condemnation is being declared guilty. Justification is being declared not guilty. And God is both just and the one who declares not guilty those sinners who believe in Jesus. Because the Lord Jesus has borne the wrath of God in the place of his people who are brought to trust in him. And so God, when a sinner by the grace of God trusts in Jesus Christ, God is faithful to his own promises and just to forgive him his sin and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. It is just, it is righteous for God to forgive the sinner who trusts in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God saves in a manner that is holy and just as well as gracious and merciful and loving. And that's why we find in the Scriptures that God's justice or righteousness and salvation go together. In Psalm 85, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And in Psalm 98, he hath made known his righteousness and his salvation. And there are many verses in the Scriptures to indicate the same thing. Isaiah 62 and verse 1. Isaiah 62 and verse 1. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. Isaiah 51 and verse 5. My righteousness is near. My salvation is gone forth. And verse 8. But my righteousness shall be forever. And my salvation from generation to generation. So God is righteous in the way that he saves sinners. That's why the love of God can only be understood in the light of his righteousness, his holiness, and his justice, 